It's uh, been really good to be, to be loaned out to you today. I don't know whether my church are delighted I've been loaned out or not. Wouldn't want to speculate on that one. But it's been really good to, to be with you and to be able to share God's word. Um, before we look at Psalm 139, should we just commit our time to the Lord? Let's pray. Dear Father, we do marvel at your beauty and we uh, marvel that a God like you would be interested in people like us. And we thank you that it's not because of anything in us, but because of who you are, because of your great love expressed to us in Jesus. And we simply praise you and thank you from our hearts for Jesus and for everything we have, every spiritual blessing in him. Give us grateful, thankful, worshipping hearts tonight as we look into your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now there's an ancient Greek saying, know thyself. It's inscribed in the forecourt of the great temple of Apollo. And it's a vital thing, isn't it? Because we can often be strangers to ourselves. We can overreach. We perhaps take on some extra responsibility, assuming that we're capable and we've got this. And then we're surprised when we fail, when we fall. True wisdom is knowing what you do know and what you have yet to know. To know your strengths and to know your weaknesses. To know yourself. But in Psalm 139, David goes a little bit further than that. And he says, know God. Because he knows you better than you could ever know yourself. So consider him first in his word and then scrutinize yourself. Because only when you know God can you ever hope to truly know yourself. Only in the light of God's revelation can you ever truly make a real assessment of who you are. So what we're going to do tonight is very simply consider God in all his greatness. And this isn't going to be an intellectual exercise only. It's not just to inform our minds. But I hope and, tr and pray that it's to touch our hearts as well. Now, some of you will, will know or remember from the news a couple of months ago that there was a horrible incident in Nottingham. Three people lost their lives, senselessly murdered. And one of them was a school caretaker who happened to be a close friend of my father-in-law. They'd known each other for 30 years. Just a, a matter of three or four weeks before the incident, he'd been up to Pontsbury to, to visit my father-in-law. And all of a sudden, he's gone, senselessly murdered. Now, that is the kind of world that we live in. Depraved, a fallen world, chaotic world, cursed by sin. And that's quite a depressing place to live. But the hope of the believer comes from looking up. There's an old chorus, I'm sure you are quite familiar with it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now that's what we want to do tonight. Christ gaze. And Psalm 139 helps us because of course Christ is very God. And we've got four awesome portraits of an awesome God here in Psalm 139. Here's the first. God is all-knowing. So as people made in God's image, we know some things. Some of us know a few more things than others. But God knows all things. 
Now, the great American pastor of the last century, A.W. Tozer, put it like this, and I wouldn't normally read quite such a long quote, but stay with me because I think it's worth it. He writes, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. He knows all mind and every mind, all spirit and every spirit, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, all law and every law, all relations, all causes of thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, motions, space-time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. God knows them all. And because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised or amazed. He doesn't seek information and nor ask questions to which he does not already know the answer. Now that's God. And the trouble is, when we hear something like that, and we're mere finite human beings, we find it hard to emotionally connect. How can we connect to a God as vast and awesome as that? And yet this psalm is a very personal one. David's talking about a specific kind of knowledge. God's intimate, relational knowledge of those he loves. So in verse 1, David addresses the Lord, which is to say Jehovah, Israel's covenant God, the relational God. And David says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Now the closest I think we can come to understanding this is perhaps to look at the marriage relationship. So when marriage works as God intended it to work, and we know it doesn't always work like that in our world, but when it works as it's meant to, you've got husband and wife living as one flesh, and each knows the other, physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually. It's a deep, intimate knowledge. And yet, even in the strongest of marriages, your spouse can still surprise you. I mean, my knowledge of my wife, Lucy, is not the total exhaustive knowledge that God has of Lucy or of me or of you. David says, you have searched me, which means literally to pierce through. So God, as it were, sees right through us and into us. He sees our actions, of course. He hears our words, yes. But he also sees and knows our thoughts and our motives and our attitudes and our plans, everything. Look at verse 2. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my going down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. Now just imagine if our government said those words. I don't think we'd be reassured. I think we'd find it a, a little bit creepy, to say the least. And we'd probably think, well, if they know so much about us, aren't they going to take advantage of us in some way? But God's knowledge of us is not cold information to hold over us or to control us. He's deeply interested and invested in us. He cares about us. In fact, he does more than care. It is love. He loves us so much that he cares. He, he came down, didn't he, in the person of Christ to die for our sins. 
He has a very particular, special love for the people that he has redeemed through his son, the church. It's the love of a father for his adopted children. One writer says that this key word, searched, carries with it the idea of searching for treasure. It's as if God, our loving Father, is searching our hearts, not to try and find something to condemn us for, but he's looking for something to approve of. He's looking for what he can bless. And that is amazing, that this God of all knowledge, this awesome supernatural being, who doesn't need anything from us at all, yet loves us nonetheless. And he loves us deeply and intimately, despite who we are. And and David, quite understandably, says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Complete knowledge motivated by pure love. That does pass our understanding. It is too wonderful to compute. And I think sometimes when we come across Bible truths that are difficult to understand, what we try and do is we try and shrink them down so that we can understand them. And when we do that, we shrink God. And David doesn't want to shrink God. David revels in the otherness of God. That he is this wonderful, majestic, awesome, supernatural being who really has such perfect knowledge, and yet he loves us. And if that blows your mind... David is going to stretch our imaginations even further now because secondly, he tells us that God is all present. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, David's language is ambiguous here. So these could be terrified questions, couldn't they? And they certainly would be if you were trying to run from God. Do you remember David spent nearly a year trying to do this because he'd murdered a man, he committed adultery with the man's wife, and his unconfessed sin kept him from God. And then we think of a man like Jonah. Do you remember Jonah was given this daunting commission to go to this rich, powerful pagan city and preach the gospel to them, and he didn't want to, so he ran away. And I think we all know times, don't we, in our Christian lives, when the mere thought of God's convicting spirit brought to bear upon our secret sins is too much. And we seek to flee. And of course it's impossible, as David shows us here, because God is quite literally everywhere, fully present in all places at all times. He's unconfined by frontier or boundary. He has no spatial boundaries. And that same truth, which is so frightening for an unbeliever or even for a backslider is a wonderful truth for a Christian walking with the Savior. And I think that's the spirit behind David's questions here in verse 7. Awe and wonder. You know that for his children there's no place where God isn't. He's always walking with us. And David gives us three contrasts to illustrate this. So in verse 8 height and depth. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. So if you travel to the farthest reaches of space, or perhaps you swam to the bottom of the deepest and darkest ocean, God's still there. In fact, the Hebrew word for depths is Sheol, which was the abode of the dead, the underworld. And yet for the believer, 
Not even death can separate us from the love of God. David says in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Then in verses 9 and 10, we've got another contrast. East and west. Dawn and dusk. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So if you could travel at the speed of light, if you could ride the wings of the dawn, you couldn't outrun God. He would still be there to hold you fast. And in every extreme of life, whether you're in hospital, undergoing an operation, or you're on holiday in a different part of the world, or you're going through persecution, or you're suffering in some way, God's there. And then the third contrast, verses 11 and 12, darkness and light. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now in July 1977, there was a power blackout in New York City. And for two days, looting and vandalism was widespread. And people took advantage of darker nights without any streetlights. It's what men do, isn't it? It's what people do. They love darkness rather than light because it's a cloak to their evil deeds. But there's no hiding from God. He's present everywhere. He sees everything. And one day in eternity, there'll be a final reckoning for all deeds, good and bad. And yet, if we're Christians here and we're trusting in Jesus, we needn't fear that day. And we don't need to hide from it. Through the Lord Jesus, we've been reconciled to God, we've been adopted into his family, and we're free. We have free and full access into his presence. The everywhere God is always available for those he loves. So however dark it is in the world, and I think we can all agree, it is very, very dark in our world right now. And yet God is present. God sees. God knows. And he loves us, and he'll hold us fast. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He surrounds us. He's everywhere. Now, as I said earlier, people might find this a bit uncomfortable. Someone might say, well, isn't this an abuse of power? Just because God can see and hear everything we do all the time, does it really mean that he should? Does might equal right? And David goes on in verses 13 and 18 to tell us that you and I have no right to be independent of God. He's every right to be fully involved and active in our lives. Why? Because thirdly, God is all creative. So every single person on this planet is the handiwork of God. God is our personal creator. Now, I did a bit of research. According to the UN, about 385,000 babies are born every day. And that's something like 140 million every year. And given those vast numbers, the birth of one single child seems a little bit commonplace, doesn't it? But David, who's thinking of his own birth, he says in verse 14, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So every human being 
is an act of God's creative genius. You may not feel it. You may feel a lot of aches and pains. But you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And what's more, every single human being created by God is known intimately by him even before they were born. Now, I remember when Lucy was first pregnant and we went for the 12-week scan. And when we went, anyway, you had this little black and white image, very grainy, it's very tiny, but you see this beautifully formed child in the womb. And the technology, of course, is improving all the time. So nowadays, it's like a 4D color image, isn't it? And it's a very moving experience. It's amazing what you can see. Sometimes you can see this 12-week-old baby sucking its thumb. And yet the creator sees more. His knowledge is complete. So even in those very early days of the pregnancy when David's own mother wasn't yet aware of his fledgling existence, God knew. And in those very vulnerable early stages, David even then is under the scrutiny of his maker. He's the object of God's love and God's care. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. So contrary to what modern society says, life does not begin at birth. It begins from conception in the womb. And though our society doesn't care at all for that tiny child in the womb, God cares. The tiniest embryo belongs to him. And it grows and develops hidden to our eyes under his care. So the received wisdom today is, well, it's the woman's body, it's her choice. But the only true choice was God's, God's sovereign choice to create that child. And the pregnant woman herself was once but a baby in the womb, created by God. Who are we to play God? Who are we to terminate human life created by Almighty God? And what's more, these verses are very clear, aren't they? God's creative genius is not just the act of a moment. He doesn't just see physically into the womb. He sees the entirety of the child's life. He sees what they will grow up to look like, who they will grow up to be, what purpose they will serve on the earth. Verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So God doesn't merely create life. He creates a life. He maps it out from beginning to end. Who are we to decide that we can just abort that? And I, I realize that I'm probably preaching to the converted here, but also I realize that the battle was lost long ago, wasn't it? Abortion has been legal in our country now for so long. The only debate is whether to extend it. But I think the warning for our country, but the comfort for the believer is that God knows and God sees. So the unborn baby may have no voice, no rights in our society, but God knows them. He knitted them together in their mother's womb and he loves them. He speaks for them and there will be justice for them one day. But for David and for us, I think we can be thankful that we weren't aborted in the womb, that we're here today, that we have lived and David is very clear about this. God's creative power and his loving care, it's not just for the beginning of life. 
It continues all the way through. Every day of our life, created by God, ordained by him. Every day he gives us has significance, even Monday mornings. And what's more, we're always the objects of his concern. God is supremely interested and invested in the people he's made. Verse 17, it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they'd outnumber the grains of sand. So from the cradle to the grave, the Lord is thinking of us, making good plans for us, superintending our lives as he walks with us. His thoughts are bent towards us, and they're vast, vast beyond human measurement, and they're more numerous than the grains of sand of the sea. There is never a time when God isn't absolutely concerned for the people he's made, particularly those he's redeemed, his new creation. And in fact, David knows the most profound and comforting of truths. Because, of course, David shared our common destiny. He was an ordinary bloke like us, king though he was, and like us, he was one day going to die. And yet David says in verse 18, when I awake, I'm still with you. And he's not just thinking about the morning after the night before, perhaps after a turbulent sleep, a nightmare, and he, he wakes up, oh, the Lord's with me. It's more than that. David knows that when he falls asleep finally in the Lord and he passes out of time and space and he awakes in eternity, he knows that his creator and his redeemer will still be with him. And I don't think there's any more comforting truth than that, is there? Once objects of his loving concern, always objects of his loving concern, even unto death and beyond. Once our Father, he's always our Father. His authority over us remains forever. And that is a fearful thing for people who want to be independent of him and are going to spend eternity in hell. But it's a wonderful, wonderful truth for the believer. So the God who knows us perfectly and is surrounding us all the time in all places everywhere is also the one who made us intimately. And he's not a careless creator. He takes care of his own. Now, the big question here is what are the implications? What do we do with this awesome God who can't be escaped, who's all-knowing, he's all-present, and he's all-creative, and he created us, and he's committed to us? What do we do with him? Now, we, we might say, well, praise and adoration is a good start, isn't it? That's what we should do. But David's conclusion here is very different. Did you notice the change of tone in the psalm? Because in verse 19, David suddenly comes out with, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. And what's going on here? Well, the fourth final portrait of God in this psalm is that he is all holy. And holy, as we know, means separate or other. So God stands apart. He's the only being in this or any universe who was never created. He's eternal, without beginning, without end. He, he simply is. Always. And he stands apart in another way as well. He's always sinless. He's never sinned. He can't sin. 
It's impossible. If he was to even sin once, he'd cease to be God. So he's eternally perfect. He's eternally other. Holiness is original to God. And faced with this kind of God, the sinless God who's everywhere and knows everything about David and is so committed to him, David desires to get in line with this God, to follow God's way, to be holy as God is holy. It's why David's suddenly given this heightened awareness of the wickedness around him. These bloodthirsty men, whoever they were, who speak of God with evil intent and misuse his name. You see, I'm sure you know this, that when you're in the world for, for any extended period, whether you have to be in the office or you're with unconverted family, or you're just around ungodly, worldly people for a period of time, in the end, you become desensitized to the language and the values of the world. And it just goes through one ear and out the next. And on the flip side, when you spend extended time with God's people and with the Lord in his word and in prayer, you tend to become more aware of God's values and more aware of how sinful the world is compared to the holiness of God. And this is how David feels as he's reflecting upon God. It arouses him to like a, a righteous anger because of the casual rebellion of people around him. So verse 19, If only you, God, would slay the wicked, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Now David isn't being a sort of hateful, judgmental man here. Obviously David in some ways spoke in a way we can't because he was God's Messiah, particularly opposed. But it's something else. God has actually given David a shocking clarity of thought and mind. David suddenly sees God in all his glory and at the same time he sees God's enemy. And the thought process is, well, how can I love God while I'm endorsing and indulging the sin and rebellion of people around me? God's enemies are now my enemies, David says. David is so committed to God's holiness and God's values, he simply can't understand why wicked people are permitted to live an open mockery of God. You know, why doesn't God just slay them, David thinks. Now, there, there was a reason, actually, why the wicked weren't slain and were living there. We read in Judges 3 of the various heathen nations in and around Canaan, and we're told they were left by God to test the Israelites, to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands. So in the same way, when we become Christians, we're not just sort of zapped up to heaven. It might be quite nice if we were. But we're left here in an unholy world as a test of faith and a test of holiness. Will Christ's people identify with him and cling to him by faith? Or are they going to follow the path most travelled, the path of unholiness? Do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6? What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? So David looks upwards at the holy God and he looks around at the unholiness of the world and it gives them this searing clarity and he's suddenly sure of whose side he is really on. 
There's no fuzzy thinking for David. He knows he's on God's side. Now, and I do wonder, and I say this to myself, do we know whose side we're really on? Or are we going to compromise and dabble with the world? I know that Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to repay evil with good, and of course, we should. We shouldn't be judgmental, we shouldn't be hateful. And yet, Jesus also taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. And if we're to pray that and mean it, then we're not merely praying, are we, for the peaceful status quo and for sin to continue and nobody to be startled or to be offended or to be hurt in any way. You see, thy kingdom come is the prayer of a person who knows whose side they're on. It's the prayer of faith that seeks the ushering in of Christ's kingdom for the triumph of good over evil, for this current kingdom of darkness to be overthrown, and for everyone who persists in their allegiance to that kingdom to be overthrown with it, and for Jesus Christ to be acknowledged as Saviour and Lord. And though we do live in very different times to David, yet like David, we live in a time of war, War against the holy God and his anointed king. And God is seeking to test and to refine our faith. And like David, we do need to be clear whose side we're on and what we desire the outcome to be. You know, so often you go into churches and and they're apologizing for the message as if they're ashamed of it. And we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel and we shouldn't be ashamed of our saviour. We need to be clear, don't we, whose side we're on. And yet for all that, David was a humble man. David knew the unholiness of his own heart. David wasn't one of those arrogant, judgmental people who can always see someone else's sin and never their own sin. Oh, I think you've got a speck in your eye and he doesn't see the beam in his own eye. No, David isn't like that. David has a tender conscience. For all the false accusations that were often made against him, David knew that sometimes it was far worse than people knew. He was a sinner. We know he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. And he desired always to be right with God. And that's why he prays in verses 23 to 24, search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me And lead me in the way everlasting. So do you remember that all-seeing, all-knowing God who sees straight through us and pierces us? Well, David invites that same God to search his inner life. To shine his holy light into David's heart. And to bring to light any sinful strongholds. Any selfish attitudes. Any pride. After all, David has prayed previously in Psalm 19, forgive my hidden faults. And by that, David simply means there may be some sins that are just so normal and so much a part of my personality that I don't see them. Basically, blind spots. And we've all got them. They're they're sins that are hidden from our own perception. We just don't see them. And so we sin in ignorance, not realizing that we've sinned. David knows that that's him. He's aware that there is unholiness in him. 
But rather than trying to be defensive and concealing it with a bit of bluster and a bit of pride, David is willing to come up right into the exposing glare of God's word, the light of the word. And he says, Lord, you see everything. You know everything. Show me these things, these sins, so that I can root them out by the power of the Holy Spirit and I can follow you in the way of holiness. What a thing to pray. It's a humble thing to pray, isn't it? But it's a right thing to pray. Because God is great. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He's all-creative. And he's also all-holy. And to encounter such a God and to remain unmoved and unchanged, that's an awful place to be. We are unholy sinners before a holy God who desires us to actively be the holy people he called us to be before the foundation of this world. And in the light of his searching eye and in the face of his spirit at work within us, the way of wisdom is not to hide, not to run, not to bluster, not to be defensive, but to be open and honest before him. And why not? Why not? Let's remember as we close what this psalm has taught us. That in a dark, frightening world, there is a God and he stands above and beyond and over it all. He's the sovereign creator, but he's good. He's not evil. He's totally sinless and perfect. And he's knowable. And he's relational. He's not cold and remote. And he loves us. He fashioned us in the womb. He ordained all the days of our lives were the objects of his unceasing concern and he went as far as to give up his only son Jesus to redeem us. That's the measure of God's love for us. Jesus Christ's shed blood at Calvary. So when we ask this God to search us, we don't need to fear the exposure. Yes, it may puncture our pride. It needs puncturing. But we're safe. We're safe with him. We're safe in him. And in another psalm, Psalm 32, David says, You are my hiding place. You will preserve me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And then famously, Psalm 46, You are refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So, let's draw near. Let's gaze upon our God and our Saviour. Because as we do, as we gaze upon him, as we learn more of him, we will learn more about ourselves. We'll learn more of our need of him. And we will want to draw near to him and rest in him. And as we do, we will know the peace that passes human understanding, the joy unspeakable that we spoke about this morning in our hearts, guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ. So I I do hope and pray that this beautiful psalm, this wonderful portrait of God, will thrill our hearts and help us and inspire us to draw close to this wonderful God who loves us. Amen. We're going to close with our final hymn, which is God, the Uncreated One, the King Forevermore. We'll stand and sing.
Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths in your word of your attributes and your character, the all-knowing, all-present, all-creative, all-holy God. And Father, you call us to be your holy people. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> 